Lord God, we thank you for what you've done in the Congo, even just through the Free Church Mission over all these years, these hundred years. Pray for it specifically just for this conference coming up. I know there are a lot of logistics that Thelma's involved in planning and, and details that uh, seem to have, there are always roadblocks for things. And we just ask that you would open up um, the pathways and that you would be able to get the 16 from the United States there, others traveling from other places and even within the country, that they'd be able to travel in safety and then have a wonderful, joyful reunion and just enjoy reminiscing to the glory of God together. We give you great praise uh, for, and we celebrate that your gospel has gone forth uh, so powerfully in this place in the world. Um, just what we heard this morning, the, even the building of hospitals and schools and the salvation of many people for the churches that have been started, over a thousand churches. We just praise you for that and the work of your people. And uh, we ask that the celebration would be glorifying to you. And uh, we pray too for the Congolese church that uh, you just continue to use them um, beyond even the Congo region, that they would become, if they're not already, great sending churches and continuing to be that way, that you give them a vision for the world and how they can play a part in your work around the globe. And we give you praise for all of this. We pray this morning, too, for your word that we're going to look at. And Jesus, your purpose, as you stated it, was to come and to seek and to save the lost. And you've been doing that for 2,000 years since you've been here. And by your spirit, through your church, the gospel continues to go forth. And we pray that as we just recently sang, that you, Holy Spirit, would um, cause us to understand the scriptures and to follow our Lord Jesus more closely. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the gospel of Luke this morning. And today we're looking at everybody's favorite parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? So if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke 15, you can do that. Also, I have it printed for you in your worship folder um, by the paragraph divisions we're actually going to be looking at. So it's a little easier to follow because it's a very long story that Jesus tells here. But this parable has been named many other things, and it could as many possible titles. You could call it the parable of the prodigal son that we're also very familiar with. It's also known as the parable of the lost son, which fits in with the lost coin and and the, and the lost sheep that we just looked at. Sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the two sons, because they're so different. And perhaps the best title really is the parable of the gracious father, because uh, he really becomes the centerpiece of the stories that's told. It'll become clear that he's the main character when we get halfway through. But so we're going to read the story, <laughs> excuse me, as we go, but the lesson of the parable is pretty simple, that God the Father receives repentant sinners with his forgiveness that he grants to them, to us, and with wonderful celebration and great rejoicing over our salvation. So Luke records this tale of two brothers, and it's really a very thinly veiled story. It's not complicated at all. You remember what's going on in the storyline in Luke so far in Jesus' ministry? If you just glance back to the beginning of chapter 15, in verse 1, what's going on? Now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. That's what's going on. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, well, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So this is what's going on, and Jesus is justifying his behavior 
and that he's actually the one that's pleasing to the Father, not these religious elites, by telling three parables. And last Sunday, we looked at two of them. Today, we're considering the third. And in our parable, it's pretty simple. The younger son represents sinners who are coming to Jesus. And the older son represents the religious leaders who are self-righteous. The parable, this it's this parable of the three. And notice how much space it gets in your Bible. It's this parable that really gets under the skin of the Pharisees and scribes. Because it's just so clear what Jesus is saying. And so our outline is pretty simple. In verses 11 to 24, we have the lost sinner who's found and given new life. And the second part of the story in verses 25 to 32, the good person actually gets exposed as self-righteous and really the one who's lost in the story. Now this parable, as I mentioned, fits in really well with the previous two parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, now we have the lost son. And the focus in all of them is really on the joy of God, the, the joy of Jesus Christ, and of us in finding the lost. So if you glance back to verse 3, I'll just remind you of this. These are very short ones. He's, and he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends, all his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We see this next parable then that we're looking at, we actually get to see the joy of those two parables expressed in the character and the actions of the Father in this last parable. That's been the focus all along, and these three parables fit together, and the joy that's emphasized in those two over a sinner who comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, now we get to see it in the character of the Father. So let's take a look at this story. For the first scene of the two scenes is this lost sinner who's found and is given new life. And there's a lot of parts to this story, and they're broken up for you, and as I mentioned in the way I printed up the text for you, but in verses 11 and 12, we have the younger son leaving home. You know the storyline. He leaves home. And then what does he do? He lives this wild, wasteful life in verses 13 to 16. But then he comes to his senses in verses 17 to 19. And then finally, we see that the father receives his younger son back in verses 20 to 24. And so our story begins. There was a man who had two sons, Jesus said. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So Jesus starts off his story by introducing us to three characters in the story, the father, the younger son, and the older son. Now really, the main character, as I mentioned, is the father, but that doesn't come out until the story is halfway over. The father, of course, represents God our Father in all of his righteousness and graciousness. 
And the younger son represents all sinners, especially those that are very much so outwardly. And the older son represents the Pharisees and the scribes in the original context, but really it represents all people who are outwardly religiously moral, and then they consider that that's somehow enough. Well, the younger son in our storyline, so we'll bounce back and forth between the storyline and some applications as we go through. He decides to break off his relationship with his father early and take his inheritance and leave. Um, not even an uncommon thing in our day and age, but in our story, he would have been about 17 or 18 years old, single man. And being the younger son, he would get a third of the inheritance. The older son gets two-thirds. That's according to Old Testament law. And um, the request, though, is clearly insulting to the father. But he acquiesces, we see, uh, unselfishly in the story. But we also need to see this is really a picture of all humanity at the same time. In our insulting rebellion, if you will, against our gracious God and creator and father, every person is this lost son, regardless of the outward level of living in sinfulness. We've absconded, if you will, with God's gifts, and we use them for ourselves without giving him praise. That's another way to describe, you see, the natural condition of humanity. God has created us all, given us a mountain of resources, given us gifts and talents and relationships and, and so many things in our lives, given us our bodies, given us our minds, and we as sinful people have absconded with his gifts, decided to use them to bring glory to ourselves in our lives and to not give praise to him. That's who we are as people. Naturally, we live for ourselves. And he, God, has left us in this condition of sin as, as humanity, and we each live our lives according to our own choosing. Well, back to the story. Now, we don't know the details of the property division and how they did it, in some fashion, but the assets would have to be divided somehow. It would take some time. Maybe they've already been through some liquidation of their assets. Maybe they're doing it now uh, in our storyline. But before he actually left, it would have taken some time after this request to get everything in order that he would get his full inheritance before he took off. You can imagine in this fictional story the tension that would be around the home. Well, then the younger son decides that once he gets his money, he's going to go off and spend it all and live this wild life in verses 13 to 16. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the younger son gets everything together and his money and takes off, leaves home for some distance country, and he wastes his money foolishly, living a wild, loose life, reckless life, as it says in this translation, probably including extravagant parties and prostitution, which comes up later in the story. But then there's a severe famine. And you notice in the story, that it just happens to come when he just runs out of money. Ah, it's probably a God thing, you know? And he has no resources left. And he's a foreigner in real need without any family or friends around to help him. And so he takes whatever job he can get under the realities 
the harsh realities of this land he's in. And so he ends up becoming the swine herder for a Gentile, which basically requires him to renunciate his faith as a Jewish person. Doesn't make enough to really live, though, during a famine, and so he even yearns to eat the carob pods that the pigs eat. No one has pity on the guy. Uh, he's a foreigner. He doesn't have friends. Famine is severe. No one has pity on this guy. His whole life has collapsed. And you think about people in general. You think about our lives today. I mean, this is often what happens when people choose to live a radically sinful life. It destroys their lives. And when such situation happens to people, they don't typically engender compassion from those around them. I mean, you've probably observed this. I mean, other people look on and say, well, yeah, I mean, that's what you deserve. There's not a lot of compassion, especially if you're an outsider. You know, and sometimes God is this severe with people. And sometimes they get it and they come back to their senses, but sometimes they don't. And so in this particular story, the younger son does come to his senses in verses 17 through 19. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so this younger son wakes up to reality. And you'll notice that in our story, he begins to move toward repentance. He's not there yet, because more will come out in the storyline. Well, he'll soon be there. But it's his hunger that prompts this reflection and a realization that he's been a fool and that what he's been doing is displeasing to his father, his family, and even to God himself. And he considers, because <clears throat> he used to live there, that his father's hired workers got to eat, and he's sitting there starving. He remembers how generous and kind his father is in contrast to the guy he works for now and the people around him and how mean they are and how no one has compassion on him. His father was a gracious man who would take care of his workers even in the face of a famine. And so he plans a speech that he's going to give to his father. And he sets off immediately and he's going to confess his sinfulness both to his earthly father and to his heavenly father. And he's going to state his unworthiness to even be called a son any longer. And he's going to cast himself upon his father's mercy, even if it means he's just going to have to take a day laboring job on the estate. Well, his repentance is coming along. Because you see three things here right away that are, that are markers or indicators of true repentance. You might want to note them and think about them yourself sometime. The first of all, we see he gives up any claims to have more of the estate because he already spent it. Because true repentance, you see, doesn't make claims. If we're truly repentant before people we've offended or truly repentant before God, then we don't make a claim on them. Second thing is we see this son is that he recognizes his unworthiness. He doesn't have any excuses. There are no real explanations for what he's doing here because true repentance doesn't make excuses. I mean, if you're really repentant, sorry, you're changing your attitude and your behavior towards something, you're not going to make an excuse for why you did what you did or said what you said or whatever it would be. Third, 
we see that he accepts whatever outcome in advance. I mean, he doesn't really know what his father's going to do. He's just casting himself on what he remembers of his, God, his father's character. And so you see, true repentance is going to come in on the front end, accepting whatever consequences are required to get the relationship restored. Well, anyway, the father, of course, does more than we expect, right? In verses 20 to 21, the younger son returns home. In such a situation, though, it's important before we read this to understand that because of all that's happened in their storyline, culturally, traditionally in this time frame, the father could actually beat and kill his son, and that would be considered just. The villagers might even, even encourage that. But the father takes the lead before the people in the community who are trying to, of course, take the side of righteousness. And before that ire arises among the people in the storyline, the father now assumes the central role of the story in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this is my son who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So the son gets met by his waiting father who perhaps heard reports the son's coming, or maybe, because it's the way it sort of works, the father just sensed something was going to be different that day. And when he saw him a long way off, he felt, feels compassion, the text tells us, and regardless of the spectacle that he's going to make to himself as this older gentleman, he runs out to meet his son and hugs and kisses his younger son and shows, that shows forgiveness and reconciliation in advance, and it's granted to him. So this clearly illustrates the searching, the finding, the joy of the previous two parables. You want to know what kind of joy is being talked about in the parable of the lost sheep? The kind of joy in the parable of the lost coin? Well, it's this joy. It's the joy that's in that gracious father in the story. And by emphasizing the emotion of the father in the story, Jesus is heightening the contrast between himself and these religious leaders who think they're so holy. They don't have any joy over the sinners that are repenting. Remember where we are in the storyline of the history of redemption. The sinners are flocking to Jesus because he will forgive them of their sins. And Jesus is elated. And so are the people that are forgiven, but not these self-righteous people who think they don't need forgiveness and sins, and they don't have any joy in their soul. They don't like these kind of people repenting. They aren't even looking for it. In fact, they consider it disgusting. They understand, as they hear this parable, they fully understand what Jesus is doing. He's making this extremely stark contrast between the way they receive these types of people and the way God, our Heavenly Father, would and the way he modeled that. Well, the younger son starts his speech, but he's unable to finish it because he's surprised by his father's over-generous response. Either he doesn't want to finish his speech and insult his father, or he just gets interrupted and stopped, and he can't finish. 
And the father has his servants serve his son rather than making his son a servant. The best robe and clothes get taken out and his dirty ones removed and replaced and it gives his son honor in the presence of all. The ring may signify a restoration of his authority in the family, but perhaps it's just simply a way of amplifying his clothing, fine clothing. And the sandals then are given to his feet shows the honor has been restored. The fattened calf normally be reserved for a large festive occasion, a religious festival maybe. Also, it would be enough food to feed the village. So if we understand the background of where we're, what we're reading here in this text, most likely in our storyline, he invited the whole village to come over and eat and celebrate. His joy is so great that he has to share it. It can't just be for the family and people who work for him. It has to be for the whole village. And he announces before all the villagers, before everyone in the presence, this is my son who was lost and now he's been found. He was dead and now he's alive. It should remind us of a passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You can turn there if you want or just write it down. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is the story of all true Christians. Ephesians 2 begins, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the presence, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's like the parable has been translated into prose. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is just another form of the parable. Do you see that? I mean, the language is so similar. The storyline is the same. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Well, the lost sinner is found in our parable. He's given new life. You know, sinners often break away from God. They wander in the wilderness. They end up at the end of the resources. And then they return because they remember somehow God and what they know of the character of God, regardless of where they came from, and that God cares for them. I mean, it's a common story. And so then they return in humble repentance and they find grace, they find mercy, they find new life from God through Jesus Christ. And many of us fit the same pattern. We've returned to God our Father Creator now as our saving Father. Maybe there's some of you here today who would like to find that. Make sure to notice one thing in the story before we move on. And that's the kind generosity of the Father. That's the focus. His generosity toward his son, his generosity toward the people who work for him, his kindness, his generosity toward the villagers, 
And as it functions in the story, it's, it's true in real life that God's kindness and restoration and over-generous salvation humbles repentant sinners like you and me. It's what makes finding forgiveness such an immense joy because that's how God receives us as repentant sinners, granting us forgiveness and rejoicing over us. Well, the second scene then is, with all this happening on, I mean, the Pharisees don't want to hear the rest of the story because they know what's come. They've been listening to him for two years. It's not like they don't know. So the good person gets exposed as a self-righteous and lost person. Ah, all along we're thinking, oh, look at this kid who takes all his dad's money and goes off and wastes his life. What a sinful, wretched person that guy is. But then we find out, oh, he's not really the lost person. The lost person are these Pharisees. And so here then we have the older son. He finds out, and he becomes jealous in verses 25 to 28. And then the older son publicly disgraces his father in verses 28 to 30. But the father nevertheless even responds lovingly with an invitation, which is a surprise ending to the story. But the story actually never ends. But we'll get to that. So in verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So in our story, the older son, yeah, he's out working in the fields, and upon returning, he finds that the fattened calf's ready to eat, music's going on, dancing in the house. It's very unusual. So, of course, he's not going to rush in. But perhaps, you know, he even senses something strange is going on. And so he summons a servant boy and asks what's going on and gets simple answers regarding the facts. Your younger brother's safe and sound. Aren't you happy? So upon learning the reason for the celebration, he becomes angry and he refuses to enter. Maybe he's afraid he's come back to take more than a third. Or maybe he's just jealous of what he perceives as favoritism in his father. Or maybe he's not aware that he's repented. Or if he is, that he's suspicious of the repentance and considers the whole thing unjust. So think about this a little deeper. I mean, this is how, isn't this how Pharisees and scribes, how morally good religious people who aren't truly saved think about the really sinful people being saved? I mean, you might have to accommodate people, people with a past. Religiously moral people who just check the boxes of theology and live an outwardly moral life, but have no inward, no inward regeneration of the spirit that's taking place, when this happens and people like this, people with a past, get saved, that means you've got to accommodate them. The Pharisees and the scribes don't want to accommodate these people. And they're, they're jealous of these people. Well, why would they be jealous of people like this? Well, it's simple. They've worked so hard all their life to be seen as righteous people. And these sinful people can just simply repent and put their faith in Jesus, and then all of a sudden, they're the same as me. That's why they're jealous. 
Oh, they're also very suspicious too. And if not, they just pretend they are because suspicion and casting suspicion and using innuendo, well, that's a great destructive tactic, isn't it? It's like, well, I don't think they're really saved. I will wait and see. Because they don't like them. Yeah, they perceive there's going to be some loss, these Pharisees do as they listen to the story. They've already experienced it in Jesus' ministry. They're going to suffer, if anything, the pride in their own goodness. But, you know, the biggest problem is that they're going to they're gonna have to share their lives with sinners who are different than they are. And Pharisees don't like that. So the older son, and back to our story now, his, his job is to host these parties. Like, that's in the job description of being the firstborn. Okay? You host parties. That, that's the job. And so he's really being extremely insulting to his other brother, his brother and to his father and everybody who's there by not doing his job. And it's an insult that's going to become worse in a moment. The older son publicly disgraces his father. It says, his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Well, we see a big contrast in character. The father finds out, comes out, even pleads with his older son to join the festivities. He knows he's upset. He could have scolded his son for his behavior, but he didn't. And true to his character, he shows restraint and compassion. But the older son unleashes his jealous outburst against his father, degrading his father in public. The scandal begins by the very beginning, by the very fact that he doesn't even properly address his father in a public setting. And then notice how he begins. He says to his father in front of everybody, look you. Is that how you address your father? And notice how he views himself in this story. It's very telling because the way he describes his relationship, you would think he thinks that he's a servant and not a son. The way he describes his relationship. His perspective is that he's never disobeyed a command. Like we're all supposed to be amazed. It's like, yeah, I've heard that before. Don't believe the guy. I mean, no one is that good. Right? He's never disobeyed a command. Really, I'd like to meet that boy. Okay? He suggests that he has never, notice that comes up twice in here, he's never been allowed to have a party with his friends. Oh yeah, right. We've already seen enough of the character of the father. He's a party guy, okay? And he lets his kids enjoy what the prosperity God has given to them. It's unlikely from what we know. He's just discontent and angry. It's a good picture of the religious leaders this guy is because they don't understand what it is to have a joyful relationship with God their Father. I mean, that's what we've seen in the Gospel of Luke so far is, is we see them interacting with Jesus and the kinds of things that they talk about and the way they view people and the way they treat people versus Jesus. I mean, the Pharisees don't have this in Jesus' time, the ones he interacts with so far. They don't, they don't have this joyful relationship with God the Father. But he does, of course. And the people who come to Jesus do, of course. They don't understand what that is. And they just assume that they're righteous because they're good enough. And they're inward rebellion. See, that's what's really going on. It's just, it's carefully kept hidden 
by their outward conformity. And Jesus is exposing that. He's exposing that inwardly they are rebellious people. They're really the prodigals, you see. They're actually worse than him. Well, the older son's words, you notice, did you catch this little turn of phrase? This son of yours? Uh-huh. Yeah. So the older son's already decided he doesn't want to be part of the family. The son of yours. He's outraged at the father's forgiveness of the younger son, devouring the estate by his wild living prostitution he throws out there. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Maybe he heard stories, maybe he just guessed right. Who knows? But accusations that aren't founded on things, yeah, they're always good to throw out there if you want to show off. Well, he's fuming at the father's festivity of using this fattened calf and celebrating such sin. You see, he fails to see and accept the repentance in his younger brother and the forgiveness and the celebration and the joy that really should be a part of the day. Let's go back and talk about the Pharisees again. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they disgrace God the Father by publicly rejecting his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That's an insult. Say you're waiting all these centuries for the Messiah to come. He comes, and then you don't believe it. And eventually, of course, they'll murder him. But they really disown God and the people of God by rejecting Jesus Christ. I mean, here's the Father's salvation for so many people who desperately need salvation. There are a lot of people like the prodigal son in this world. You know, they're people just like us. They're people just like you and me. And they need salvation. Well, the father, nevertheless, responds lovingly, surprisingly. This guy seems to have no end to his patience. And so in verse 31, he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the contrast again. This son of yours, and the father reminds him, your brother. He speaks kindly to his son, though... He himself is sorely mistreated. He acknowledges this older son's service and what a blessing it's been in his life and reassures them that, you know, you're not going to lose your portion in the estate and everything he has is yours. Well, then he corrects his older son by saying that together they have to rejoice. This is fitting, he says. They must return to the house together and lead the festivities for this lost son has been found. It's time to celebrate the repentance and the new life and the new obedience. And that's what they've both been allegedly waiting for. Telling people what they've been waiting for, hoping for, praying for. You know, we too have to celebrate the salvation of sinners, even great sinners, especially great sinners. How do we do that? By having them tell their stories by accepting them and by encouraging them from the scriptures and in prayer. There's no loss comes to us to have more people saved. So what would the older son do now? In other words, the religious leaders were offered salvation too if only they'd repent and believe in Jesus. Did you notice there's no ending to the story? So what will the good person who's exposed by Jesus as self-righteous and lost do now? 
See, religiously moral people who are unsaved, as we've said, are often jealous that God accepts these kinds of sinners, these serious people, and that they become joyful, and that God's joyful, and they have a new life, because they think about themselves and they realize that means I have to repent, but I really can't think of too much I have to repent of. It's a sad situation to be in. It's because it means that they don't have a satisfying true relationship with God, and, and they can see and sense the contrast. You know, when God turns a life around, it really stirs up things among people who thought they were already in. Maybe you remember that too. That happened in my family. It happened in my wife's family because we we're the first evangelicals, as far as we know, the first people who believe the gospel. That's what that word means. First people who believe the gospel, and then all of a sudden, was that some kind of a commentary? on the rest of us who are religious. So like the father in the story, God is pleased to save sinners and who are repentant and get forgiven. I mean, he would even, even from the Pharisees and scribes. And if that's you, you know, you see in the story too, this particular story is not just Jesus castigating the Pharisees and scribes. He even offers them salvation at the end of the story. So like the father in the story, God is pleased to have sinners at his celebration, at his party table. And that's why Jesus did that. We've seen, like repeatedly, like probably on every other page in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is at some, some party. And so by this parable, Jesus identifies himself as expressing the father's love in the story, which is God's love. And Luke would have the church do the same thing that Jesus is doing in proclaiming the gospel because God our Father receives repentant sinners with forgiveness and rejoicing. So like I've mentioned this a few times, but parables by their nature really force the involvement of listeners. So that's a key interpretive principle for you. So whenever you read a parable, it's one of the unique features of what makes a parable a parable is that you are forced to be involved in the story. You can't just read the story as, and be distant from it. You are a part of the story. And in this particular parable, how is Jesus forcing you to be involved? Because you have to answer the question, what's the older brother going to do now? You see, Jesus is putting these religious leaders on the spot. So what are they going to do after I tell the story? Now, we as the readers, we're left to assume, and we know from the rest of Scripture, we know what's going to happen. They wouldn't respond properly. They would respond with hostility. In other words, the older brother doesn't go back in. And they would begrudge God's generosity and reject Jesus as the Messiah. And just as it was then, so it is now, when a lost sinner is found and given new life, often good people who are exposed as self-righteous, they just stay as the truly lost ones. But you don't have to stay there if that's you here this morning. You can, you can answer the story differently for your own life and find salvation in Jesus. Now, one Christian reflection that stands out, that the question I often ask myself, and hopefully you do yourselves when you read a parable like this, is primarily, is this is the question. Do we want sinners to get what they deserve, or do we want them to get salvation? It's a question I ask myself. Hopefully it's a question you ask yourself 
Do I want sinners to get what they deserve, or do I want them to get salvation in Christ? What did we all receive? Well, the parable of the prodigal son is a favorite parable to Christians. Hopefully you've enjoyed it again. But just to clarify some misconceptions of the parable. So you read this parable, it's, it's not about sibling rivalry and why it's bad. You see how that's just like, what a low-level interpretation of that would be. That's not why Jesus told the story. It's also not teaching that all returning prodigals are truly repentant, either parable-wise or in real life. I mean, some people, some of them return with very conniving purposes. Yeah, many indeed. The parable is also not really about straying believers returning to God as much as it's really about salvation in the first place to begin. This parable is not teaching that God doesn't require repentance, even though he's ready to forgive. Repentance is implied in this story because it's connected to the two previous stories where repentance is extremely stressed. That's part of its context. This parable actually teaches, in other words, that no history of sin is too great. So please, repent and be forgiven. And hopefully this parable is a favorite for all of us because we see ourselves in the story in the right spot. That we see we're the rebel son who's returned to God for salvation through Jesus Christ. And hopefully it's a favorite because we realize that being that character in the story, God the Father has received us as repentant sinners and has caused great rejoicing in our life and in heaven over the whole thing. We also need to realize, as we finish up here, that the repentance that leads to salvation is not just some kind of a general repentance before God, a general God even, that's just simply being sorry for things or wishing they were different, because general, general repentance doesn't go anywhere. It's just general. It has to be focused upon Jesus Christ. He's the one telling the story, remember, okay? So let me explain a little bit more. General repentance is not sufficient because it doesn't really cause us to own the depth of our sin. All of it. We cannot repent with a repentance worthy enough, considering our guilt. Furthermore, we would still have no real hope for a new and different life if it was just a general repentance, other than sort of this fleeting hope that comes and goes as we repent and then we quickly set out to try harder and we realize it doesn't work because we fail again. And perhaps some of us have tried this general repentance. You know, that's how our society does it. You see, we need more than our repentance. The repentance is pictured here and filled out by the larger message of Luke and the New Testament, even the Bible, is a repentance for sin and faith in Jesus Christ as the only and real mediator with God the Father. We can't mediate for ourselves by our good works, by trying to cut a deal with him in some way. You see, repentance is feeling of the burden of sin and renouncing it and committing to turn away from it and walk in obedience specifically to Jesus Christ. It's like in our story, it's to openly fall on the mercy of God the Father through Jesus Christ. And then coupled with faith, it's a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and a new life. It's not just being sorry 
and trying to change because that doesn't really produce a forgiveness. It doesn't get you there. And it's certainly not going to bring you new life. Good questions to ask your friends who are struggling, trying to get right with God by this means. So many people think that that's how they can get right with God. And they're waiting for someone like you and me to tell them the specifics of how it actually works and where you're going to find forgiveness and new life. In other words, it's just simply repentance through and faith in our Lord Jesus specifically. You know, and Luke would have the church think about this parable and think about our mission and consider that God our Father is gracious in forgiveness and he awaits repentance sinners. And it's our hope and prayer, hopefully, that God would lead us into his perfect and pleasing will to be on mission with Jesus in this world. So let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, you've taught us much through this parable, through this passage of Holy Scripture. You've taught undoubtedly through you, Holy Spirit, very specific things for each and every specific person as they've been considering your word by faith and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Things to change in our lives, whether they're attitudes, whether they're thoughts, whether it's knowledge, whether it's behaviors, whether it's commitments, whatever it might be, emotions. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would not let anyone not resolve those things with you. And that you, Lord Jesus, would have your way in us as your people and show us the next steps, not only for our individual lives, but that you would show us what's next as a body, as a church. And we pray these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen.